Welcome to Arena Athletes, your home for MTG Arena Strategy. Step inside the digital arena with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Brought to you by Face to Face Games. You're listening to Arena Athletes number 121, Magical Candyland. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me again this week. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic, David. How are you? I am about, let me check the watch here, 45 minutes away from the unofficial start to my summer vacation, and I'm looking forward to it. Nice. What sort of plans you got? We're going to see the family, going out to the farm, meet up with my daughter out there, get some uh, some animal time in. Not really. We'll just feed the cows and then uh, drive back. It'll be great. Nice. I hope you guys have so, a good time. I do, too. I will miss magic. But uh, in the meantime, I get to talk about magic. So what's been going on in Arena this week? We had the guild events, and I have a question for you. Did you play them? And if you did, did you enjoy them? Yes and yes. Travis Fun Hating Sours played them and actually really enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't go through and like pick what was the best deck. I played the two guilds that I liked the most. Chat told me that one of them actually was the best deck, the Orzov deck. Um, but I played that in the Azorius deck. I got my five wins. And I kind of wanted to play more, but I couldn't really find a reason to. Um, and we'll we'll get into like how I figured I may as well shoot for Mythic, even though I'm not going to make it after I did that event. Because um, I think I may actually make it. But I had a really good time in there. I thought that that was a wonderful way to introduce new players to the game, to let new people complete their daily quests. The rewards were nice cosmetics. I was happy to get them. I'm already using those lands uh, in the Battle for Zendikar lands that uh, someone was nice enough to donate me the cash to buy on stream. That, that, <laughs> thank you again, Dave. Um, but as, as far as that event went, it was absolutely fantastic. Did you get a chance to try them? Uh, I did. I uh, carved a little time. It, when was it? It was when did it open up? On the weekend, right? Like Sunday or something like that. I think yeah. Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. I carved out a little bit of time, and uh, it seemed like some of the events were having issues, like the drafts and stuff, or just the gameplay in general across arena. So I didn't want to dump a bunch of money into an event to just to get run into a bug or something like that, some kind of issue that wouldn't let me continue playing. Um, so I focused on these, and it was a lot of fun. It was. Um, I found myself not caring about the rewards in this event. I kind of just tried all the different decks, and it kind of took me back to when arena started and a lot of us didn't have large collections yet and we were playing with like the pre-constructed new player decks or we were playing with just like a handful of packs and the starter cards um and it kind of had this like mix between limited and constructed it was like almost like a super sealed it felt like yeah um and and i thought it was really cool and and we talked about it last week on the podcast where it kind of reminds me of playing on moto originally where you log in and pick a deck or get a deck randomly assigned to you as as a free account um, and that's kind of what it felt like. Like you could play the same deck over and over and over again, play your busted one of rare, or try to figure out what the deck was doing, um, and then switch to another deck once you've you know got your fill or whatever. And I thought it was really cool. There's you know some people are saying, oh you know I wish the event was longer or I wish the rewards were a little bit better. Um, I kind of liked it the way that it was, but I did feel like there was an incentive for me to keep playing. Yeah, I understand why that's a thing. Like, I understand that they can't just hand out infinite rewards for this. Um, I thought it might be cool to have some kind of small reward for continuing to play. 
Um, but I also found it really easy to use these decks, these, this event to complete my quests. So I had a, a, a small reason to do it, um, given how busy I was this weekend. Um, and I can understand why it wouldn't be a good thing if the event was a week long, but somewhere in the middle might've been, uh, might've been ideal for me. Cause I would have played it a ton if I could have got like, you know, a handful of gold or something each time or something like that, just to give me, it's like an extra little incentive to keep playing these aside from just enjoying the experience. Yeah, I, I would have liked one more ex- incentive. I mentioned when we were doing our mic check that maybe they could have had like the second time you run through the gauntlet and get your five wins, that maybe you get a card style for a common card uh, and they could let you do that once a day or something. Um, I, some of the events they did in the past were so long that I didn't want to do them because I didn't think the format was fun, but I would have done it five. Whereas this one, I feel like it could have been 10 or 20 wins that you needed and I'd have been happy to go chase them because it was just such a fun event. So it's, it's a balance and it's also going to depend on what you enjoy as a player. Like I really liked this one, but when they come out with one that I think is terrible, I'll be happy that it's only five and I can go in and get my rewards and get out. Yeah. And the lands are pretty sweet too. Like the, the regular basics are, are kind of okay. I think they were return to Ravnica basics or something like that. Um, but I really liked the uh, the unhinged lands, I want to say that they are. Um, I thought those were really cool. Made me a little disappointed that I bought the Battle for Zendikar lands because I didn't realize that these would also be kind of full art unstables. But I think it's cool. I have a variety now and what, what I can pick from. Um, and looking forward to only getting three of the next four because I'll miss the one because the event is so short. But say la vie, that's life. <laughs> that's awful. I'm sorry, dude. Well, then I'm glad you got the BFZ ones. Yes, exactly. So at least I'll have my swamp or whatever, and and I'll have my mismatching John Avon lands plus Battle for Zendikar lands. That's kind of perfect. Now we just need white borders. Yeah. I didn't see what the next one was, but I know there's a popper one coming up for sure. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple of, uh, it looks like, kind of random gimmicky, for lack of a better term, events coming up as well. So yeah. we'll see which one I have to miss. Yeah. Yeah, Popper looks like fun. You know what? People people really like Popper. And I feel like Popper is pretty close to what this event is. Yeah. Except, obviously, you make your own decks. But there's going to be a bunch of people out there that just post decks on Reddit or the Twitters or whatever. And, and people will go out and find decks that they like and build them cheaply from their collection. So, looking forward to that. Um, I read somewhere, and I didn't confirm this. I probably should have. But um, I think these decks were the new player decks. Uh, somebody mentioned that in my chat too. Again, unconfirmed, but if so, those were not actually a bad place to start. No, they each had a shock land. They each had a couple of rares. Usually, one of the rares seemed to be like constructed playable, mm-hmm. um, and then one was kind of just janky, which is fine. Um, but I think like the Azorius deck had a deputy detention, and the Is It deck had Niv Mizzet and things like that. So, if these are the new player decks, I think that's a really good place for people to start. Um, especially since the decks just kind of come out and play mostly okay against each other. Like, saw the the statistics on Reddit, and there was like 60% win rate all the way down to like 45% win rate or 40% win rate or something like that. Um, but I think for new player experience, I think that's a, still a pretty good range. Yeah. Um, and if those decks are always going against each other in the casual queues, I think it gives those players a really good experience, uh, a kitchen table magic experience, which I think is what the new player deck should be doing. So okay. kudos to Watsi on that one, and uh, we'll see what the next events are. Agree. So last week we d- dove into standard kind of headfirst. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot about Scapeshift, and we talked a little bit about a couple of other decks that we were playing. Now, you did the fandom event. You cast the fandom event since that time. Mm-hmm. So what did you take from that event after our conversation and then going into your play this week? So we saw all of the decks 
that we talked about last week registered for the fandom event. Now, it's interesting to note, the previous two weeks had been won by Esper decks, but this week there was no Esper deck registered. So we're like, okay, we're actually going to have a week where an Esper deck doesn't win. An Esper deck won. How does that happen? Well, one of the participants had internet troubles right as the event was starting. So show happened to be in the chat for the, the, the cast and Alex, the guy that runs the fandom tournament said, Hey show, will you fill in for us? We had somebody that had to drop out and he said, uh, sure. I'll just use the deck. I play on the ladder. Uh, I was an Esper control deck and he went undefeated through the tournament. Uh, just absolutely crushed it. And you know, I'd been like, how did that, how did that change me? Well, I'd been kind of goofing around on the ladder. I'd been playing Scape Shift. I figured there's no way I'm going to make Mythic this season. There's just not enough time. But I'd been playing Scape Shift, and I'd been having an okay time. And then I found this stupid Hydra deck that Ray showed me that was actually pretty fun. It wasn't very good, but I was having a good time. I was casting big Hydras, and we were fighting things. And then on, on Monday, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, by the way, dear listener, I was like, you know what? After I did those guild events, I was like, what if I just try Show's deck? What, what if I just try it? Like, how can it hurt? It looked pretty good. Uh, I started on gold two, and I what's after gold? Uh, platinum. Platinum. And I finished halfway. Th- I, no, I got all the way through platinum to the beginning of diamond. And then I played it again today, and I'm at diamond one. Basically, I need to win three more matches, and I'm mythic. It's a pretty and good run. That's at about 15 hours of play. And I hit an awful spot this morning where for three solid hours, I won a match, lost a match, won a match, lost a match, just sat there at the beginning of Diamond 4. So, like, there were certainly some variants and my win rate could have been better. But this deck is crazy good, and I honestly think it might be, like, just what you should be doing in Standard. It's not the most fun deck to play. I enjoyed playing Scape Shift in the Hydra's deck a lot more it's really fun to win. And there's so many little interactions in it that you like don't initially pop up that are super good. Like some, just some examples. Some of the big threats from other decks are enchantment based, right? Like if a Nexus deck plays a search for Ascanta or a wilderness reclamation, you need to be able to answer it. And you can actually do that with this deck. Cause like Despark, which I have one copy of main deck can hit wilderness reclamation Three mana Teferi can bounce one of those enchantments, and then you can use uh, Thought Erasure to get rid of it, drawing a card in the process. Um, it's got a one of Command the Dread Horde. And I, like I remember saying as we were watching this tournament, I was constantly remarking to, to Ethan and the Asian Avenger that Show was getting a lot of value out of this one of Command the Dread Horde. And lo and behold, I've been getting a lot of value out of that one of Command the Dread Horde. Um, if you look at the basic list he has, he's running two in the main deck. I-, I fiddled with the sideboard a little bit from what he's doing. Um, but like, that's a really spicy card. And as it turns out to fairy hero of Dominaria, pretty good. Blue white flash decks have a really pro- hard time with Teferi three mana and Narset just kind of chokes a lot of decks that are looking to draw cards. Like when you turn crisis into something that they have to spend six mana on and you can answer with a two mana cast down, it's kind of stupid. And then the Elder Spell, like all you really need is a Narset and a three mana Teferi that you've gotten some value off of and you're ready to ultimate the Hero of Dominaria and just win the game. Uh, Wrath beats a lot of decks. Like this is just, it's really good. It sounds to me like this particular build that you're looking at, because like we've seen Esper Control quite a bit here, but this particular build 
seems to be, I mean, maybe this is just Esper Control in general, but it seems to be attacking all angles, or as many angles that it can against the meta, and just trying to, like, leverage card advantage so that if you end up with cards in your deck that aren't great against your particular matchup, that you can just get around it, get value in other places, um, and then side the, sideboard those cards out for game two and game three, and really hone in on the deck that you're doing. So, like, What's a bad matchup in game one for this deck? You know, I haven't actually found bad matchups. I've found bad draws against particular decks. So if I keep mm-hmm. a hand in the blind that has a bunch of Narsets, um, you know, a Thought Erasure, uh, a D-Spark, and a five-mana Teferi, and then I cast my Thought Erasure and I see a bunch of one-drop vampires, I'm like, oh, crap, we're in trouble. But that same hand could look very different if I'm thought erasuring and have a mortify and a wrath in hand. Uh, so it, it really felt more draw dependent. Most of the games that I've lost, I felt like I flooded out or my opponents have landed, you know, one thing that's very difficult to interact with. Uh, main deck Gideons are actually a little bit of a problem because there's really not much of a way to interact with that other than an elder spell or kind of really that's it. I, like you can't yeah, even bounce it. Yeah, I was looking yeah, through here for like what it. else I can do about that, and there's there's really not anything. Um, maybe you can thought erasure it, but like that that's the only card that I feel like is a, an actual legitimate problem. Even scape shift, which I thought was going to be incredibly difficult, like I've been okay against scape shift. Um, you can get them to the point where like they're just making a couple zombies per turn, and like you're actually going to ultimate to fairy uh, five mana a lot faster than you would think that you would. Uh, because by the time you, you actually land it, you've run through most of your answers, you've wiped the board a couple times, things are stable, and you're just generating kind of insane card advantage off of the three mana Teferi and Narset. Interesting. I remember playing White Weenie back in the last the last time Esper Control was kind of in its heyday. Like, it feels like it, it's come and go a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, not even just, like, around rotation but even before rotation and definitely the main deck Gideons were like a mainstay against the esper control decks and then i kind of took them out as as esper started to go away in in favor of the the nexus decks and the scapeshift decks and things like that so i find it interesting that it's now coming back and or is it coming back like are you seeing it a lot or is it just something that you're just afraid of just because it's the boogeyman the gideon yeah i i haven't actually seen it that much like i i've got a sideboard plan to deal with gideons but most of the Gideons that I see are actually coming in from the sideboard. So mm-hmm. kind of the, the level up here is when you play against a vampire player, like I was doing this on stream today and I start bringing in Noxious Grasp and they're like, what is that for? Are you going to kill their legions, lieutenants? I'm like, well, I can, but it's actually there for Gideon. And they're like, well, they, they didn't play a Gideon. I'm like, but they're gonna. Uh, and lo and behold, all of the vampires list, at least most of them have three Gideons in the sideboard to bring in against me. So bringing mm-hmm. in ways to answer that is just kind of a big deal. I think that's an underestimated skill for people getting into standard or that don't like haven't really played on like big events or don't go to GP- GPs or, or competitive events at their LGS playing standard is that, you know, level one is playing without sideboard mm-hmm. cough, best of one cough. Level two is knowing how to sideboard for your particular matchup, right? Because you'll, you'll read your opponent's cards and you'll know what cards are good, what cards are bad. But level three is reacting in advance to what your opponent is going to be sideboarding so you're sideboarding in advance of their sideboard which i think is an underestimated skill it's certainly a skill i don't have very like i haven't honed it in i'm not very good at it yet sideboarding is definitely a piece that i need to add to my game but i recognize that that is like that next level 
And then the next level beyond that is also not sideboarding because you know your opponent's going to sideboard a certain way, but I don't know how much further down that rabbit hole you can go without just psyching yourself out. So maybe just try to get to level three and maybe stay there. But that, that's an underestimated, I think, for a lot of people that are not professionals or not competitive players that are trying to get to that level and they don't expect that. Um, you know, they, they stop at that level too. And it's like, I'm happy with my sideboard, but you really have to think about what your opponent's doing. Mm-hmm. Because if you can anticipate that in game two, you know, there's probably not going to be a game three if you won the first one. Whereas a lot of players, I think, in that middling range, especially where I am, is they will react to things that they see in game two and game three, as opposed to reacting or anticipating them and, and making those decisions in advance. We should do a sideboarding episode. We should get a sideboard expert on, a constructed expert on, and talk about sideboarding. I like this idea. I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not qualified, so. I like this idea. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. You do that then. So any other decks aside from this one that you've that stood out for you from the fandom event? Not really. Like I, I like there there were some other decks that were here. There was a Bant Ramp deck. Um Bloody worked on one that I liked a lot. There were some Elementals decks. Uh Dave C brought Is It Phoenix again. And I've seen that some on the ladder, but like that is not a problem for this deck. Um FYI, if you're playing Is It Phoenix. Do not cast your finale when three mana Teferi is out. I have had so many people do that and then insta scoop when they realize it's not going to do anything because it, it's making you cast this, the, the spells with something on the stack, which is not the right time. So you're just discarding the card. Um, there have been feather decks. Vampires are real. I've seen those all around the place. Uh, I've seen some mono red aggro on the ladder, but I, I still think vampires is just a better choice. And I've seen some John dinosaurs, which my deck kind of just tears to pieces. Like, it's looking to just present big threats, and I'm looking to one-for-one one with them um, and and then draw more cards, and I'm totally able to do that. Okay. Now, unfortunately, the Esper Control deck is rotating out. Mm-hmm. So those of you that or aren't already it? in there... Well, actually, I guess we can talk about that. We can certainly speculate about that. Um, what are the key cards, then, that you think make this deck what it is because i think that determines if it's going to rotate out so the cards we know they're rotating for sure are the search for iscanta the five mana teferi anything else off the top of your head aside from the lands the the lands are the other big one um Mm -hmm. just about everything else we get to keep now if we get i i I don't know if we'll get something as efficient as search for Ascanta. But as long as Narset's legal, you can't replace something like that with just straight-up card advantage or card draw. Because, like, you get into problems with Narset mirrors or issues like that. I don't actually think 4-mana Teferi will be that hard to replace. People have already suggested putting in Ugin or maybe 6-mana Liliana as a possibility. And that's assuming that there's not a decent 4- or 5-mana Planeswalker in the new set, which there very well could be. But can you do that? Because Teferi's one of your win conditions. Aside from aside from Ken Man the Dreadhorde, like you don't really have any other way to win the game. Correct. So we need you need a five mana win condition, or you need to bring in another win condition at some point. And I think that something like Ugin or something like Liliana could potentially fill that role. And again, mm-hmm. I I really like the control shell is here and it's good. If there's some sort of artifact that draws cards or functionally draws cards or something like that, it could replace Search for Ascanta. And if there's some sort of good, you know, four to six mana win condition, it could replace Teferi. So, like, I'm thinking that this deck is... The the shell is at least still going to be there because we're still going to have Kaya's Wrath. We're still going to have Command the Dreadhorde, Thought Erasure. Um, 
sure, cast down is rotating out, but there's going to be a black removal there's, spell in the new set. There's always a there's always a two mana black removal spell, and it's not like you're playing like moment of craving or something like that that like had a had a specific role in defending your life total as well as clearing the board. Um, like cast down should be replaceable. I'm not terribly concerned about that. Um, I wonder losing- if one of the gods. I was going to oh, say, go we're, we're losing Hostage Taker, which is actually a big deal out of the sideboard. Uh, mm-hmm. That card has been huge for me. But I like where you're going. Maybe one of the gods, you were saying? I was going to say, like, maybe one of the gods serves as a win condition because of that, like, recursion, right? The the constant threat, the, something that can't necessarily be answered, like a Teferi Emblem, for example. Um, Kefnet is a card that I've seen played in not necessarily the control, like the Esper versions of control, but I've definitely seen Kefnet played in like old Grixis control and things like that, mm-hmm. where um, it's it's somewhat of a value engine, but really it's just more a persistent threat. Um, from days past, standard past, we we remember cards like Aetherling. Um, there was the card, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was the, um, anytime you targeted it, you could discard cards and bring it back. Wasn't That was played for a little bit Nezahal? on Arena. I think that was played for a little bit on Arena yeah. in a control shell before, you know, we kind of got full collections and things like that. So, like, we've seen cards that will fill that role in the past. It's just a matter of what kind of shell can you play it in and, and does it does it stand up in, in current standard. I remember Aetherling being absolutely miserable, for those that don't remember. It was a creature that you could pay mana and exile it and return it to the end of the turn. And I think you could also pay mana to bounce it back to your hand. Yep. No, you could pay mana to... to uh, uh, changes power and toughness or something like that. Yep. Yeah, it, that was an annoying card, and um, Standard was absolutely miserable. That was during the Sphinx's Revelation phase. I, Knock on wood that we never get that again. I think they actually printed that so that that control decks would have a win condition and a way to beat the mirror, because that's most often where you saw it. But like anything like that in this deck still good. So that that's mm. the question. It's like, is just killing all of the creatures and having some sort of four to six mana win condition available good enough. And I think there's a possibility that it will be. So I I wouldn't be too hesitant to build this deck, especially if you're looking to get to mythic over the the course of the next two months. Um, Although if like wild cards are a concern, maybe you want to look at something that's a little more rotation proof. But in the meantime, if you've got tournaments to play or you have some of these cards anyway, this deck looks pretty good. And I don't think the lands will hurt it as much because we've still got all these tap lands that we could play if if we have to, right? Like, we're still going to have the shocks. It's just the buddy lands that we're losing. Yeah, I was. that's the next thing that I was going to ask you because I don't have the experience playing this deck is how important are those check lands coming into play on tap? Like, is that something you care about most of the time or do you find yourself like, yeah, it just doesn't really matter? Yeah, you care about it and it's important, especially versus like an aggressive deck it's a big deal but like this is the thing i think a lot of people often forget is like nearly every set that comes out has some dual lands in it so like we're going to lose the buddy lands here unless they're reprinted in this set and they easily could be uh there could be some sort of tribal buddy lands like we've seen those before so it's it's a question maybe we get the fast lands right uh reprint of those from scars of of mirrodin those would go fantastic in this like who knows what they're going to print, but they're going to print some duels, and those may replace the old ones that are rotating out. Yeah, or we'll just get the next cycle of tap lands, and we'll be in a slow mana base world, which favors I mean, control. Ev- I was going to say, if everybody's in the same boat, you know, I guess except mono red, um, you know, that's probably fine for a deck like this. So, um, okay, interesting. I look forward to seeing. 
Um, I do have the deck available to me now, so I think I'm going to be playing it in the next season, um, given that it's my vacation. I don't have enough time to get <laughs> Mythic tomorrow. <laughs> Actually, I came up just short of, of Diamond, so which is unfortunate, but got there with the Elemental deck to uh, Plat 1 or Plat 2, almost Plat 1. And um, we'll see. Maybe I can get to Diamond on the back of Esper Control next season. I think you might be able to, dude. Like, I went on a, just a tear yesterday, and then after a three-hour slump, another big tear today. Like, it takes time, and that's the nature of laddering. Uh, but this deck just felt really good. I also had an epic 45-minute match against a Nexus deck and eventually beat them. Um, pro tip, if you're playing against a Nexus deck and you're able to resolve Unmoored Ego, name Wilderness Reclamation. It's not actually a Nexus of Fate deck. It's a Wilderness Reclamation deck that happens to have Nexus of Fate in it. Um, they'll either scoop to that or they will next time somebody does it. Um, it may take 40 minutes, but they'll figure out that they can't win if you take that. Good to know. Um, I mean, while we're on the topic, like quick tips on sideboarding for people that are going to get into this, de- into this deck. All right. Tell me the deck. I'll tell you the sideboard plan. Uh, mono red. Okay. Mono red. Uh, we want to get in three cry of the carnariums. Uh, we've got our Basilica bell haunts already. I typically like keeping them. I do want two D sparks, uh, because these actually take care of a lot of the things that we're interested in like the um, Experimental Frenzy and the Chandra. Uh, you probably want to take out at least two Narsets in that matchup, possibly three, and then keep all your removal in the hand disruption in. Okay. Uh, elementals. Teamer Elementals. Teamer Elementals. Uh, we're going to bring in Duress because we're worried about Nissa. We're going to bring in Despark because we're worried about Nissa. We're going to bring in Noxious Grasp because we're worried about Nissa. <laughs> so just deal with Nissa against the green decks. Yep. Your rats uh, will take care of everything else, even the value they've gotten from all of the elementals, but you need to be able to kill Nissa. Some of them are playing Chandra as well, uh, and D-Spark is pretty good against her. And then, like, Thought Erasure takes care of a lot of things, too. Okay. Uh, Black-Red Reanimator? Uh, I ha- or Grixis Reanimator? I, I haven't actually bumped into the reanimator deck very often, but uh, I did play a couple games. And one thing I found that they really didn't like was me having Command the Dread Horde. So play all of your removal and bring in both copies of Command the Dread Horde if you don't already have the main. And just let them do all the hard work of putting stuff in the graveyard and then get it out and kill them with it. Cool. Um, Grixis uh, Control, so Bolas Control. Any of the control matchups, you kind of sideboard the same way and that you bring in the hand disruption and you cut most of the wraths. I still typically leave two wraths in when I'm playing in the blind because a lot of people will bring in a creature threat, uh, which is kind of not what you're expecting, right? So I've seen Esper lists that will bring in a Lyra or Grixis lists that are actually playing Nicol Bolas the Ravager um, to, to try to get you there. So I like having some wraths as kind of a catch-all answer for those. But generally speaking, I still want to play the Basilica Bell Haunts. I want to play the Hand Disruption and try to just shave out those spot removal spells. Typically, you'll want both copies of uh, the Elder Spell in here as well. There you go. You can't buy that kind of value on this podcast. No, I would say not. Mostly because we're not selling it. Yeah, that too. Cool. Well, thanks for the rundown. I appreciate that. I'm going to go back and listen to that since I kind of just glossed over all of the details as you were going through that. That was a very detailed sideboard guide, though, and I look forward to trying that next month. Yeah, you, dude, make this deck. You will like it. I Hey, I had it all except, like, one uncommon, so I'm, I'm good to go on this one. Groovy. Okay. Uh, next up, 
we're going to switch topics here a little bit. We're going to talk about the the title of the podcast, Candyland. Where, how do you want? I don't even know how to start this. Where do you want to start with this? So I bumped into a link on Twitter as I was trying to convince myself to get out of bed on a Saturday morning, but was like, nah, I don't want to. I'll just scroll through my phone a little bit more. And uh, Allison Lurs had tweeted an article from The Atlantic about the creation of Candyland and kind of where it came from. And that's not really the focus of this, although it was kind of cool to learn that it was a game for kids like during the polio epidemic. And like just the idea of moving was kind of nice for them because they couldn't. Um, and it was a way to pass time while children were in quarantine. Like it was kind of a sad read, honestly. But it did get me thinking about the game. And I know a lot of parents who have children kind of hate this game um, and kind of love it at the same time because it, it's it, – I, I mentioned to you Snakes and Ladders. Some people who have, have not played Candyland have played Snakes and Ladders. What do those games have in common? They lack decision points. Yeah, basic, basically. Basically with these games – now, it gets even more interesting if you have someone – who's played Candyland and Snakes and Ladders, and will tell you that they'd rather play Snakes and Ladders because you get to roll the dice, whereas in Candyland, the decision's already made as soon as the cards are shuffled. If you're not familiar with Candyland, it's a board that has a trail that your pieces have to follow. Each of the, the spots on the trail has a color, and you play by shuffling a deck of cards and turning one over when it's your turn, and it has the color, and you move to the next color that's available there, which means that as soon as that deck of cards is shuffled, the outcome of the game is already determined. You just don't know what it is. You're just revealing it, and there's no decisions made while you're playing. You're just turning over the cards and seeing who wins. Snakes and Ladders is essentially the same game, except in a deck of instead of a deck of cards, you have dice. So you, there's no way to—you couldn't cheat and just turn over the cards and see who would win— but the game is functionally already determined in the sense that there's no decisions to be made and nothing can change the outcome of those dice. So if you were a time traveler, you could know the dice rolls and then know who would win. But I, I'd like to make the assertion that every game is either Candyland or chess and that there's a spectrum between those games with some games being more like Candyland, meaning that there's far less decisions for you to make and some games being more like chess, where it's mostly decisions that you're making. Change my mind. Or don't. <laughs> um, I, I was against you up until you said the spectrum, where you said like every guess, every game is either predetermined or completely decision-driven. There has to be a spectrum in between those. Yeah. Right? Like, like it's, it's not that you're one or the other. It's that you're 60-40 or 80-20. Um, it, it's funny because... One of the when I, I'm going to GP Vegas and I like going to Vegas. My wife and I go to Vegas. We gamble sometimes. I like to play craps because that is just you know pure fun. Um, I, I recognize that everything in Vegas is is house like there's an edge toward the house, so you don't have to tweet at me. Like I understand that. One of the games I hate, absolutely hate, and this is completely irrational by the way, is blackjack. N not because I feel like I like I don't know how to play it or because. Like, there's no decisions to be made because there are very clearly decisions to be made. It's the fact that sometimes you get a hand that is completely out of your control and you have no, you like, you, you make all the correct decisions and it doesn't matter because the dealer was going to hit 21 no matter what you did. And, and I hate it for that specific reason. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is what you're talking about here. And I think where Blackjack is not Candyland. Nope. And it's, and it's not chess, 
but some hands of blackjack are Candyland, and some hands of blackjack are closer to chess. And and it's just the number of decisions, the number of meaningful decisions that you get to make. And I think that's where you're going with this one. It is. It wasn't actually... Blackjack wasn't the card game I was going to use for the analogy. There was another one. Um, it's... Uh, is it is it Agic the Gathering and begins with an M? It's Hearthstone, actually. No, yeah, of course <laughs> it's Magic. Um, <laughs> there are hands and there are matchups that feel like you're playing Candyland. One of those matchups for my deck is playing against the Simic Flash deck. Like, if they have the right draw and I have the wrong draw, I'm not beating them. And it, it doesn't matter. There's not actually any decisions to be made, right? Like, if I have a hand that I keep in the blind, it starts on three with the Teferi. I've got a four mana Wrath and a five mana Teferi and a bunch of lands. Like, I'm not winning that. I'm, I'm just not going to beat them. They're going to counter the Teferi, counter the Wrath, counter the next Teferi, and by then I'm dead. So, like, people would hear me on stream lately talking about, I guess we made it to Gumdrop Village, because, like, I, I'm not actually making decisions at that point. I think what that means for me in Magic is that you need to zone in when you're actually making a decision. Because I, I think that more games of Constructed Magic are actually playing out like Candyland than they did in Limited. I think knowing the matchup and making those decisions in and sideboarding and in what you want your main deck to be are kind of stacking your Candyland deck. And that is absolutely a part of Constructed. But I, I think it surprised me as I moved into Constructed to find out that there was a little bit less play. Um, just because, like, we're playing better, more efficient cards you're going to have to mulligan a little bit more. That took a, a lot of adjustment for me as well. But I, I think that Constructed is closer to that Candyland spectrum, but you get to bring your own deck of colored cards, uh, which is, I think, another reason why it kind of matches up nicely with Magic is it was, you know, colored cards. Um, mm -hmm. But it, I think when you get to that moment where you are making a decision, it's it's time to kind of stop and think about it and don't just flop your cards down on the table. Am I, is this useful at all, or am I just going off on a random tangent? I, I think it's a random tangent, but I think I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because I think the constructed is not the the playing of the game entirely, just as you think limited is not the playing of the game entirely because it's a draft or a sealed portion that you build your deck in during. Um, I think constructed, I think you have to look at it as a whole, and it's like, what deck are you bringing? What main deck cards are you specifically picking from a, a pool of available cards that could go in this deck based on the build? What sideboard cards are you bringing? What cards do you bring in in certain matchups? So I think, I think all of your a lot of your decisions come from outside of that game, and then in game you end up with these kind of automatic matches. Maybe you say like fewer decision points, but there some games there are certainly decision points to be made. I think there's always a decision point to be made, especially when you look at your opening hand. Am I keeping or am I mulling this? Yeah. Um, but I, I can appreciate that some of the games can become very robotic. And you have to take a holistic look at your experience playing Magic in Constructed, not just individual games. And I think the latter is a bit of a problem with that. I think it, I think it exaggerates that problem because you're playing hundreds of games the same matchup 20 times and you're kind of just clicking through making all of the same decisions. It's like, I've seen this movie before. I know how this script goes. I'm going to go through with it. Yeah. Well, I, so yeah, I think you also make an excellent point in that for me, when I think, 
and maybe this is for other people who are moving from limited to playing more constructed. And this might, I mean, that's kind of what we've done on the podcast and kind of what I've done as a player. So maybe this will help some people, but like, I view a limited experience exactly like you said, is here's my sealed pool. The first game is build the deck. And then the next game is play the deck. Whereas in constructed, I'm not actually building decks. I'll do that on occasion, Mm -hmm. but it's very much, I'm doing this for fun or because I'm interested in doing something wacky when I'm actually going to play constructed. It's I like, I had way more fun playing standard after the first fandom event than I did before. Cause I got to see the decks that everybody else had built. Kenji brought a cool elemental deck. It's like, I'm totally building that and I'm going to play it. And then people started playing scape shifts and I was like, I want to play that. Like my skill in constructed does not lie in constructing the deck, but maybe tweaking one or learning the matchups and getting good at it. So to me, if I didn't get to do that draft portion, like how much fun would draft be if you were outside having lunch and then I brought you a draft deck and said, I drafted this, go play it. You mean like the constructed event that we played in this week? Yeah, it could st- like basically right. There's a, there's a cap to the amount of fun you can have on that in limited. I think. Yeah, I think so too. But I mainly the reason that I came up with this and I wanted to present it is if you find yourself in a scenario where you're playing on the ladder and you're pushing to hit mythic or you're pushing to hit platinum or diamond, whatever it is that's your goal. If you lose a match and you don't feel like you made any decisions. That's okay. Not every game is going to have them. Some of the matchups are just set up where like you don't get to do that. There's some draws from the vampire deck that are just very difficult to beat. And like it seems like there's times where I don't like I've got three removal spells. They deploy three must answer targets. I have to use these removal spells. Now, sometimes you'll have a decision about which removal spell to use when. For example, do you want to use Cast Down or Noxious Grasp if we're in a sideboarded game and they play a Stampeding or a Shifting Ceratops? Well, it depends on the list, right? If I know that they've got a lot of other green threats, like this is a deck that's playing Nyssa, I, I clearly want to use the Cast Down. But against the Dinosaurs deck, I'd actually rather do it the other way because I need something to be able to kill a Rotting Regisaur. So, like, that's a decision point, and that matters. The decision you make there can absolutely win or lose you the game. But if we're talking about just somebody curving out one, two, three, and you've got removal spells two, three, four, like that, that's, that's kind of just, you know, that trip to the gingerbread plum tree has already been preordained. All we are doing is, is turning over the cards. So it actually helped me like stop tilting a little bit as I bumped into a matchup that was rough for me and played out my cards and it wasn't good enough. It was just like, I don't feel like I made any decisions. And it's like, You did. You made the decision to bring this deck to this matchup. You made a mulligan decision. You made a sideboard decision. But once the cards were in the deck and shuffled, like anybody could have flipped over the top 10 cards and said who was going to win. Okay. Yeah. And and that's interesting. And I think I've certainly run into that with limited as well. So I don't think it's just a constructed thing. And especially in best of one. Yeah. Where you're just like, you know, I, I, I had a, a reasonable hand and my opponent went had the nuts and it's just like, I'm never beating that. Right. And, and you think to limited and the, the decisions you make in limited are far less complex a lot of the time, because really it's just like, do I attack here? Or do I not attack here? Those are like the, the most common decision. Do I block? Do I not block? Am I racing? Am I not racing? So, um, you know, I can appreciate that you see this in limited too. I think the key thing though, is that in your best of three, there's a lot more decisions and it's not just 
flip over the decks and see who wins, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're playing best of one and you're running into these challenges, maybe switch to best of three. I know the matches are a little bit longer and, you know, it's a, lo- a little bit harder to climb the ladder if you're looking to do it quickly. Um, but I think, like, playing that best of three and getting more of a, a match in, as opposed to just individual games, I think will help your, your tilt too. Uh, unless you really tilt off at like bad matchups, in which case maybe just avoid magic altogether. Yeah, magic's probably not the game for you. But I, I think there's a spectrum of how much variance, aka Candyland, you want in your game and how much you want to remove. And I think generally speaking, magic does a fantastic job of balancing that, which is why we keep coming back to the game and keep playing it. Um, so I, I like that analogy of looking at a game that's all decisions, chess and a game that's no decisions, Snakes and Ladders or Candyland, and then trying to figure out where on that spectrum you're happy. Because there's certainly other video games you can play that I don't know that has a higher skill cap is the right word, but have more decisions, um, like constant decisions, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, but that that that's really not my jam. I, I like Magic. Yeah, magic is is a, a perfect blend, I think, at least for me, of decisions and, you know, luck factor or, like, predetermined things. Because sometimes you just want to see your deck do its thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm thinking back to, like, draft, and it's just like, you know, man, I drafted two Risen Reefs and an Omnath. I just want to see these cards go off. I don't care if I don't get a game out of it. Like, I'm winning. I'm enjoying this. I don't care. And then sometimes your opponent's deck does a cool thing, and you're like, sweet, kudos to you. I mean, usually when I lose those games, I, I'm not very happy, but, like... Sometimes you like that. Sometimes you just like watching your deck go on autopilot and you're like, I built this. I constructed this this limited deck out of my sealed pool or out of my draft or whatever, my bot draft. And, and I'm okay with that sometimes. I don't remember what the card combination was in Kaladesh, but there was a time where I made infinite Thopters and I'd like that was just what I wanted to do. It was an actual infinite with something like 15, but I remember jumping up and down screaming, look what I have created. I was so happy. So, like, yeah, that's absolutely a part of it, too. That was, like, the animator animation module plus the one that, like, there was one that gave you energy counters when a creature entered the battlefield. There was one that you paid two energy to make a Thopter. Uh-huh. And then I don't remember what else. There's a third card involved in that, I thought. Yeah, it was like a three or four card combo that was incredibly intricate and fragile and, and not even really that good. But nonetheless, I, I made all the Thopters. And, like, just having those feelings and those moments in Magic. T- today, I had, uh, I-, I mentioned the 40-minute Nexus match. It finally ended uh, when all I-, all I had in play was the three-mana Teferi. I've nabbed all of their Wilderness Reclamations. Everything's fine. I know they have a Chemister's Insight in hand, and that's all. And they go to put it on the stack. And I just casually command the Dread Horde getting back Narset, so they're only drawing one card. Their Tamio, so I can do this again later if I want to. My Teferi, uh, oh, they had just killed my Teferi and Narset uh, with a Blast Zone. So they they flash this in, and I'm like, cool, I have a response. Like, that was so cool. And being able to see that line a couple turns in advance and then execute it, they didn't scoop on the spot because Nexus players never do, but I did eventually win, and like that interaction made me very happy. That is one of the reasons why magic is great, right there, because like you think that like all that was predetermined, but you had to see the line. You had to be a good enough player to to know that that is a possibility. You have to know the interactions from your cards. So it's almost like I miss the. Sometimes I miss the days of being new to magic, 
and and I, I think you I think people get this for a lot of different games. Like I remember World of Warcraft, and I missed the days when I was new to World of Warcraft because I didn't know everything. Yeah, and I was still learning things. And I think once you've mastered a deck, you at least I would run into the risk of like like this deck is boring because a lot of it's predetermined because I've done a lot of these things already. So um, I, I find it interesting that like for me anyway, the better I get with something in magic or just in general, it's like the, the less interested I am in playing it. I like the exploration phase. And maybe that's why the, the guilds of Ravnica event was good for me because like I was, I didn't even look at the decks. I just double clicked on it. Like I'm going to play gruel. Let's see what's in here. Um, and then seeing the cards as they came off the top and like, Ooh, this is exciting. Like I've never played with this card before. I wonder if it's going to be good here. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought that was interesting. That's fair too. And, and may explain why I'm having some fun playing constructed because like, Am I the best limited player on the planet? Probably not, but I'd like to say I'm pretty darn good, and there wasn't a lot to learn there, at least in compared to compared to what I'd already learned. Whereas in Constructed, it, it was new territory, and there was so much to learn, it was almost overwhelming. And I get that opportunity to feel like, hey, I learned something. I've gotten better at this thing. And like just gaining those experience points feels good. So that, that might be a thing. Like If you're a Constructed-only player... Go try a draft. If you're a draft whiz, go pick up a constructed deck and take it for a spin. Uh, you may find that you're able to reignite some passion in, in the game, and you may find that you were playing the right format for you all along. Couldn't hurt anyway. Yeah. Multi, multi-talented. Multi, uh, uh, what did they call it? Triple threat. Yeah. So that would be limited, constructed, and... Yes. Yes. Podcasting. Podcasting. That's me. I'm a triple threat, yo. You you are you are a triple threat. Still got to work on that third one a bit though. Yeah, yeah. All right. Short episode this week, but like I said, I got to get on vacation here. Yeah, we don't want to, Dave's looking at his watch right now. We don't want to keep this man <laughs> waiting. Let's get you off to the funny farm. The funny farm. It is it is going to be great. Um. So unfortunately, I don't get to watch any of your streams this week. But where can other people, listeners of the podcast, watch your stream? Uh, you can find me tomorrow at twitch.tv slash Simulan. I'm actually going to be out of town uh, Thursday and Friday as well. Uh, so make sure that you're catching that on Wednesday. Uh, the Phantom event will still be happening. I just won't be able to host. So it'll be almost as good as it usually is. Um, and then hopefully I'll be back next week. Uh, but it's at twitch.tv slash Simulan. Awesome. And I am at twitch.tv slash DCivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. Come and watch if you want to see me uh, one three a sealed event and then play RimWorld, and then promptly go offline and seven X or seven one or two or zero a draft immediately after closing my stream because that's how I roll. Yep, that's just what you do. It, so it, come to, come to my Twitter for screenshots of good drafts and then come watch me play bad drafts. I think there's actually something to it's easier to play when you're not streaming. I mean, we've said it before. I don't know if it's easier or if I'm just cursed, but I'll, I'll work on it and figure it out at some point. Well, it should be easier with all those people in chat telling you the good lines. <laughs> Something like that, yes. Yeah. Actually, it's it, it's funny because I actually, if I find that if I don't look at chat at all during the draft portion, I usually end up with a better deck. Yeah, how about that? How about that? <laughs> Thanks to Face to Face Games for the support and the host. We'll catch you next time. Adios.